Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com. Well, I'd like to give a special thanks to the Blog Talk Radio team for featuring this show all day today on their homepage. Well, today I had a wonderful experience. I had the opportunity to attend the National Archives press conference for a discussion of the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. That's right. I actually had an opportunity to stand in front of the original document. I actually took a picture of Abraham Lincoln's signature and posted it on Facebook. I just felt that this was such a very emotional discussion about our country because 150 years ago the enslaved were now free, free, or at least some of them are free. But this document will be available for three days beginning December the 30th through January 1st. So if any of you are in the Washington, D.C. area, I hope that you will make the National Archives one of your stops so that you can see the original Emancipation Proclamation. Well, tonight's show will focus on the property rights and wrongs of African Americans at the courthouse. 
And I am happy to welcome Judy Russell, the legal genealogist, to help us understand what African Americans experienced from being treated as property to having their property stolen by those who use the law against the freedmen. Now, if there is a bright spot, the African Americans experienced at the courthouse, well, it did create records for descendants and genealogists. A certified genealogist with a law degree, the legal genealogist Judy Russell examines the interplay between genealogy and the law. She is a lecturer, educator, and writer who enjoys helping others understand a variety of issues, ranging from using DNA and family history to the effect the law had on our ancestors' lives and the records they left behind. She is a graduate of George Washington University and Rutgers School of Law. So let me give a warm welcome to Judy Russell to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Judy, welcome. Thank you so much, Bernice. I sure appreciate the opportunity to be here. Oh, well, I appreciate the opportunity to have you really help us understand the law. But before we even begin to talk about property and property rights, let's first talk about you. At what point or when or what motivated you to combine your knowledge of law with genealogy? Well, getting involved as a genealogist in the early 2000s, say 10, 12 years ago, I realized very quickly that a lot of people, they understand births and marriages and deaths, the usual types of genealogy records. But boy, the minute they got to those court records, they got nervous. Some of the language didn't make sense. Some of the documents might as well have been written on Mars. And I figured if I could help it move along a little bit into making it a little bit easier to understand, that would be payback for all the help I've gotten from other genealogists. Well, we certainly appreciate that, then, if you consider that payback. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) So, Judy, let's examine property rights and wrongs of African Americans at the courthouse by, let's say, beginning with the chronology of individuals of African descent beginning from slavery to the present time. So what do we need to understand about the laws during slavery time? Bernice, I think the most important thing to understand, and, and it's certainly one of the hardest things for us in the 21st century to kind of wrap our heads around, is that we're not looking for the usual kinds of records of people. The records of slaves were really recorded as property. And and grasping that and looking at all of the different ways that slaves were treated by the law It's all governed by the laws of property. You know, slaves could be bought and sold. We all know that. Uh And we know that, that slaves are included in wills. But some of the things that got recorded are things that I think may be new to a lot of your listeners. Slaves could be leased, hired out. They could be put up as security for a loan. They could be seized in payment of a debt. 
and they could be given as gifts. And all those kinds of transactions may have been recorded at the courthouse. Uh So these are really important records, but they're property records. So we're not looking at things like the wills of the slaves themselves. We're looking at deed books and court minutes because that's where bills of sale were recorded, particularly because slaves were so valuable as property. Uh I was looking at at a deed the other day or a deed book the other day in the July 1804 session of the court minutes of Burke County, North Carolina. Now, in Uh in the early 1800s, this was pretty much the frontier. And Thomas Patton sold two slaves to Ben Smith, and the the bill of sale is recorded in detail. One was a boy by the name of Rye, about 15, and the other was a boy by the name of Ned, who might have been a little bit older. The price for those boys was $400, and that's not together. That was each And to try to put that into context, land in western North Carolina at that time, because we're talking mountain country, could go for as little as 10 cents an acre. And really good farmland would be maybe a dollar an acre. Mm -hmm. So this property, these slaves, they were so much more valuable than even land. And that's why you get these amazing records with details about the names and the ages and frequently physical descriptions. But you can't help but keep seeing how much this is property law. There are things like warranties, promises that the slaves were in good physical condition or that they were sound, sensible, and clear of impediments. It's the kind of language you'd expect to see in a bill of sale for a horse. And that is so, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you, and but it's painful. It's, it's painful to hear this. It, it's shocking. It, it's shocking because you, it, it, oh, what can I say? I mean, I saw my ancestor. Uh, listed as a boy for four hundred dollars. Yeah, and so that's so hard to think of a, a human being uh, being worth more than land. It's it's literally stunning, and you you can have in these court minutes. I saw in seventeen ninety three, for example, also in Burke County, there were three or four full pages. Of court minutes, and remember, these are just little notes that the that the clerk is writing, and he yes. wrote down three or four entire pages describing one transaction because it was nine slaves, and and that was a big deal in Burke County, and mm-hmm. there were warranties for that they were truly bona fide slaves for life, mm-hmm. and that they were the just and legal property of the seller. And that's, you know, wow. Then you turn around and you see these deeds being proved just the same way land deeds were proved. Somebody had to come in and say, I saw the seller sign this. 
So you're looking, when you're looking for these documents, you're looking for court minute books and docket books and loose papers and the deed books, mm-hmm. which is, that was surprising to me. I would not have expected this to be in the deed books, and frequently that's where it is. Yes, yes, and I've you seen will it get, in the deed books. Yeah, you will get names and you will get ages and you will get descriptions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you're trying to figure out where the slave owner was from, one of the things you've got to keep in mind is that people from the South frequently took their slaves with them into the new territories. Mm-hmm. And as those new territories became free territories, you may find them coming back to the slave states to sell their slaves because they would be freed if they stayed in the territory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the pieces of evidence that I used in a, a National Genealogical Society quarterly article that I wrote was a man from Indiana coming back to Burke County to sell the slave there because he was going to lose ownership if, if he didn't sell the slave. So you get lots of different kinds of records. You'll find lots of issues that come up in wills and court cases about wills. And Mm -hmm. boy, are these different from those cases that you talked about with Bernie Jones in the show a couple of weeks ago about fathers of conscience. Fathers of conscience, yes. You know, these are not slaveholders who are trying to protect people. These Mm -hmm. are fights between the heirs over whether slaves should be included in the estate or whether they really should be considered as gifts that were made earlier. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. these court cases are, are not just going to be recorded in the counties where these events took place. You're going to find them in, in reported appellate court decisions. So you can find them on places like Google Books and Hathi Trust and Internet Archive, and you can get details about the transactions. There were laws that said you couldn't give a slave orally. It had to be in writing. So you'd get a will that would say what to do with the slave, and then you'd have the daughter coming in and saying, no, no, daddy gave me that slave. And it would list the slave and all of the slave's children, sometimes a second generation. So Lots the point of, you're making is that you will find a document. You will find a document because really poor people didn't own slaves. And it's the wealthier people who left wills and who knew about the law and how to use the law. Mm-hmm. So they recorded these things. And if they weren't recorded, they fought to get it back into the estate. Yes. So there yes. are records, lots now, and lots of records. Now, I, I want you to explain some language that I've seen. Mm-hmm. A slave has been, uh, I mean, a slave is being sold. Mm-hmm. However, the family members are saying, but we want the children. It's some, right. some type of language that implies that if there is a child, the child will go back to the original seller. Yeah, and and this is why I spe- one of the reasons why I specifically used the example of this is the kind of language that you you would expect to see if somebody was buying or selling a horse. 
mm-hmm. you will frequently find language in, in a horse sale that says, but if the mare is with foal, we get the foal. You get the foal. And and that's what they're doing here. It's except it's people. It's people. Wow. It's well, you people. have a question coming out of the chat, and uh, it's by Marianne. I assume the documents use the first names of the slaves, or is it just the description? Frequently, it's the first names because a description alone isn't good enough. So you'll have the slave Millie, uh, yellow in complexion age about 16, and her issue, the boy, Ned, age two. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's almost always the name, sometimes in addition, an age and a description. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to just throw it out to those in the chat, and if you want to call in to ask a question, because this is, this is quite complex. And we're talking about all kinds of documents. I mean, we're even talking about minutes. Oh, yeah. Where the family members, <laughs> they're arguing. Absolutely. And I have also seen where a group of slaves were put up as collateral for to build a new courthouse. Not and only half collater- of the family said no, and the other half said yes. So there was this huge meeting. And and the meeting, of course, is exclusive to Louisiana. That's that's a civil law family meeting, and you're not going to get that in other states. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a kind of a court quasi judicial proceeding there in Louisiana. What you'd get in another state. So if you're talking exactly the same issue, but okay. if you're in Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia, what you're going to get is a lawsuit instead uh-huh. of a family meeting. But it's uh-huh. exactly the same thing. It's the same thing. You're going to get people executing for debt. The worst case I came across is an 1805 Virginia case uh-huh. where the first husband died. The wife is the executor of his estate. She marries a second time. He, the second husband, frees a couple of slaves that he had owned before he married her. Uh-huh. Twelve years after he freed them, heirs to the first husband's estate sued the second husband and the wife. Yes. And they actually got the emancipation set aside because it was a debt to the estate. Wow. I mean... Twelve years later. Twelve years after. Twelve years of freedom. Wow. Twelve years of freedom. That's a Virginia and, and case. And you out mean of, they uh, actually reversed it? They reversed it. They they took the freedom away because he didn't have the right to cheat the creditors by freeing the slaves. So you're going to find cases executing for debt. You're going to mm-hmm. find cases where slaves have been hired out, and yes. somebody is suing for an accounting of what happened to the money that was paid for the labor of the slaves. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of cases about accountings and that sort of stuff. Now, remember that, of course, we're talking about old cases. We're talking pre-Civil War. A lot of these cases have been reported, meaning that that the courts actually wrote a written opinion. Mm -hmm. And because they're that old, a lot of these books have been digitized. 
They're on Google Books. They're on Internet Archive. They're on Happy Trust. And that means they're word searchable. So you can search for the first name Ned and Slave and Neshoba County and Mississippi and see if you get a hit for somebody in your ancestry. Keeping in mind, you've got to use all of the um, alternate spellings. You can't just assume it's going to be Millie with a Y. You've got to look for Millie with the I-E and maybe Melly in, in addition to Millie. Mm-hmm. But there, there could be lots of these cases because you're talking about amazingly valuable, and I hate to use the word, but it's property. Mm-hmm. It's property. It's so property. you want to look at all of these different types of records. If you're in the counties, you probably are going to have to go page by page. Unless you've got a pretty good idea of the slave owner's name, mm-hmm. because the slave owner is going to be indexed, but not the slaves. Not the slave, right. Not the not slave. The slave, right. Well, if, if anyone would like to ask a question, I'm going to give you an opportunity to call in right now, because we're going to go on break and then come back. The number is 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host if you would like to ask a question right now before we go on break. Uh, There's a comment coming out of the chat where Janice uh, Forte mentioned that she found her great-grandfather in a Greene County, Alabama sheriff's registry, and he had been seized by the sheriff because his owner had lost him in a gambling debt. That's it. You're going to get a lot of that. It's it's where they put them up as a as collateral for gambling. They put them up as collateral for a loan, and then or they just get into debt. And the most easy thing to seize is the slave. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. Well, we don't have any questions right now, Judy. We're going to take a quick break. Come back and continue this discussion. Terrific. Okay. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. 
Now, you have been listening to the legal genealogist, Judy Russell, discussing property rights and wrongs of African Americans at the courthouse. And she has just given us some basic information concerning deed books and bill of sales and what types of records we need to look at in the courthouse. And this is before the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, Judy, do you have any other information to share with us before the emancipation, or should we move on? I think we probably should move on to emancipation and the records that were created right around the time of emancipation. Well, go ahead. Well, the big thing here is to remember that emancipation was prior to the end of the war, and so there were some changes even in border states like Maryland, 1864, going into 1865. These were tough times for everybody trying to come to grips with what do we do now that we have these free people, yet the economy was very much based on having free labor. And this was not a good thing. It really except in creating records, what happened was they're called apprenticeship laws. And basically they were the slave owners trying to grab a so-called apprenticeship of the children of the freedmen. Mm -hmm. And here again, they used the notion of property. And the way that they used it was, You guys, you new freedmen, don't have the property, the wherewithal, to support your children. So we'll take them and we'll feed them and house them and, of course, put them to work for us. This was done all over. It was done in the southern states once the war was over. It was done in Maryland as early as 1864. Mm -hmm. What happened in all of these states was that they brought the African-American parents into court and essentially said, we're going to take your kids away from you. In Maryland, the law was, was probably the worst. There, a court could take a child away from the parents as long as it said it would be better for the child to be bound as an apprentice to some white person. And the numbers of kids who were taken away from their parents on the theory that the parents didn't have property and couldn't take care of them is is stunning. Michael Haight just wrote an article, in, and it's brand new, just published in the December 2012 Maryland Genealogical Society Journal, And he says in Somerset County, Maryland, essentially every African-American woman had to bring her children to court and prove that they didn't have to be bound out. Mm -hmm. Alabama and Mississippi gave preference to former owners. Any child was going to be bound out if the parents couldn't support them. In North Carolina... They bound out every child if the father wasn't part of the family. Wow. 
And they said you can apprentice any child born outside of marriage. Well, when were slaves free to marry? Every child born in slavery was born outside of legal marriage. That meant every single African-American child in North Carolina could be bound out. Now, I have only seen one of these apprentices. Uh, I saw it in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in time where the parents then went back to the court to get the child. They and they back. were denied. They were denied. Frequently. And to tell you how bad it was in Maryland, in Talbot County, Maryland, on what's called the Negro docket of the orphan's court there, the women who had their kids taken away from them, you know where the fathers were? In Union uniforms. They were in the U.S. colored troops. But because the fathers were absent, they took the kids away. In Mm -hmm. just the eastern shore counties of Maryland, probably three thousand children wow lots of court records and that's just maryland in right. and the you know the freedmen's bureau was not making this any better they were encouraging this in mm-hmm. virginia in texas in mississippi mm-hmm. in georgia any ch- in virginia for example the freedmen's bureau actively helped bind out any child where the parents were getting government assistance mm-hmm Now, this doesn't mean that the parents always lost. There's there's a really terrific federal judge in Maryland named Hugh Lennox Bond who finally stepped forward and said, enough, and and put a stop to it in Maryland and actually got the Chief Justice of the United States, Salmon Chase, to back him up. Mm -hmm. But it took a long, long time. So you want to look at these records and you want to look at them in every court in the South where they were allowed to assign apprentices. So in North Carolina, it would be the county courts. In Maryland, it would be the orphans' courts. But you're going to see in those records fraud, payoffs, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kids whose ages were listed as much younger than they were so that they Mm -hmm. could keep them longer, and the Freedmen's Bureau records have got the stories of the parents coming in right. and saying, I need your help. Right. It in fact, got, that's where I read it in a Freedmen's Bureau record. Yeah. It got so bad that some of the Freedmen's Bureau people actually threatened to send troops in to get these children out. Mm-hmm. It was the same sort of thing, though, when you came to the, the, the Southern Black Coats. You know, you had vagrancy laws to pressure freedmen to sign labor contracts. Mm-hmm. And if if you didn't have a job, you were vagrant. And if you were a vagrant, the county sheriff could hire you out to a white employer because you were subject to being arrested. It was literally a catch-22. You didn't have property, so you couldn't get property. And if you couldn't get property, you couldn't work. And if you couldn't work, they were going to bind you out. They were going to make you do it. Now, we have two questions coming out of the chat. One uh, one question is, were domestic servants considered apprentices? 
the answer is maybe. It, it, certainly a, an apprentice could be trained as a domestic servant, but it's not necessarily so. And the I mean, other question is, have the children's names ever been documented? Oh, yes, absolutely. They are in those court records. They are probably the single best records you are ever going to find to link parent to child during this time period. Mm-hmm. And you'll frequently find the mo- not just the mother's names, but the mother's saying, my husband, John Smith, is in the Union Army. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, can, you can look to these records to link the families together. Now, I, it looks like there's a question coming out of the chat, but I'm having trouble seeing the question. And uh, Okay, I'll just keep going with you. So let's just talk a minute. So, we're talk, so this is forced apprenticeship. Right. Now, what about property in the Civil War? I mean, you've always heard about the 40 acres and a mule. Absolutely. So what about the property? The the problem there was that the promise, and this was by General Sherman, it's Special Field Order 15, it was issued on the 16th of January, 1865, and, and he, he said, I want you people to go on to this land. What he didn't have was the authority to confirm them as owners of the land. Yes. His yes. point was, I want this land to be worked productively, by people who were loyal to the Union. Uh So he put in this order, 40,000 freedmen claimed land under the order, started working the land, started raising a crop. Andrew Johnson becomes president. He comes to the conclusion that the way to heal the wounds of the Civil War is to placate the South, and he rescinded Order 15 and returned all of that confiscated land to the planters. Mm-hmm. Now, here again, the one good thing is records. A lot of the people who moved onto that land petitioned the president. People from Edisto Island, South Carolina, for example, wrote and said, we look to you for protection with the privilege of purchasing a homestead. Mm-hmm. And those petitions are going to be in the National Archives. So you want to look for these petitions. But land was something that white Southerners did not want the freedmen getting their hands on. That was something that was going to be too dangerous. And they actively wanted these labor contracts under Reconstruction. I call labor contracts basically the road to hell being paved with good intentions because it started everybody down the road of low expectations. Uh Low expectations on the part of the former master that he was going to be able to get work for as little money as he could come up with and low expectations on the part of the freedmen. You know, yeah, it, it did free them from the kind of gang labor system that, that slavery had, but they almost always got themselves, you know, what's that old story about I owe my soul to the company store? Yes. 
Sharecroppers ended up owing more to the landowner for tools and and seed and other supplies than they could repay. Uh So they never got themselves out of owing for everything that they got. And then some of the, even just some of the rules of the labor contracts, uh, as far as how many hours they had to work. Oh, it wasn't much, just sun up to sundown, sun six up to days sundown. a week. Sun yes, yes. So they, it, they really were back into slavery. It it was absolutely slavery. There, There's a great quote from one Freedmen's Bureau inspector in Texas, and he said that these, these contracts and the codes that, that came up around them gave Freedmen about the same protection that a wolf does a lamb. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it just was not a good situation. Mm-hmm. Now, there was briefly a homestead, Southern Homestead Act from 1866 until 1876, and it opened up 46 million acres of land in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Louisiana, and Mississippi. There were 67,000 homestead applications made under that act. Only, not even half of them, only about 27,000 actually got a patent. Mm-hmm. But about 23% of them were African American. And mm-hmm. their success ratio in getting patents was even better than white applicants, about 35% of, of African Americans to 25% of whites. Mm-hmm. But you're still not talking about very much land right. and not very much actually getting into active production. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You still have a situation, though, that as late as 1910, You've probably got one out of every seven farmers who is African American. And in in if you look at the um agricultural census for nineteen ten, African Americans yes. had fifteen million acres of farmland. Yes. So despite these terrible, terrible conditions that prevailed from Emancipation right up to World War One. Lots of people who'd just come into freedom gained land. And they gained it primarily as farmers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But because of the sharecropping, it meant a large cotton economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you had the boll weevil and the depression. Right. And now we that... have several questions coming out. Alrighty. <laughs> several questions. Okay. So one of the questions is about peonage. Mm-hmm. And what do you know about peonage? What can you say about peonage? It not a whole lot, quite frankly, because that's it it that's that's one of those terms that I would call a legal term of art, and it it depends on how the term is being used at any given time. It's mm-hmm. you know it's a Spanish word. It's it's laborers who were bound because of debt. Um, it can also mean convict labor. I, I think the person is probably using it in a debt situation here. But it's it's legally binding yourself to a creditor 
until your debts are paid. Um, it could have been ordered by the court. It could have been um, under contract. It could have been something that somebody was convinced to do by somebody who took advantage of them. Uh It's currently illegal in the United States. There's a specific law that says if you try to bind somebody in servitude until their debts are paid, there's a federal statute, criminal statute against that. But I don't see a whole lot of difference between the sharecropping situation where you get yourself into debt forever and what is effectively peonage. Mm -hmm. And so many people under the whole sharecropping, I mean, they were they they've had liens and they they were constantly in debt. They were constantly yep. owing. Yep. So it was a situation that they basically could not get out of. Could not get out of. And you know, there were all kinds of programs um, before and after the Depression that was, that they were supposed to work for farmers. Mm-hmm. You have the Federal Farm Loan Act of 1916. You have the Federal Emergency Relief Administration in the Depression. And you've got the Farmers Home Administration loans from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And mm-hmm. the fact, absolute fact, is under every one of those programs, there was overt anti-African-American discrimination. Yes, yes. In, in the um, Federal Farm Loan Act of 1916, the Documentation establishes systematic discrimination. Uh In the Federal Emergency Relief Act administration, which is under the Depression, clearly African-American farmers applied, but they didn't get what they needed as often as whites did. Uh Um, I saw some statistics that were published by the um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, in June of 1934, there were 84 applications from blacks and 49 from whites. 24 applications were granted. They were all white. Mm-hmm. When a white got relief, the average was just a little under $20. When an African-American got relief, it would have been 15 mm-hmm. And the argument throughout the South during the, the, the Depression was that African Americans could survive on less. White, white people needed more to get by. So, mm. I mean, that's pretty shocking stuff. Yes, it is shocking. And the best documentation of this discrimination came in a lawsuit only in the last few years. It targeted the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and of course you've got the Farmers Home Administration, and the argument that was raised was that the the discrimination by USDA denied African-American farmers ownership and operating loans and disaster relief that were widely made available to white farmers. The class action suit was brought in 1996, 
it was settled in 2000. There's a lot of money that's been paid out, but it's too little too late. What Uh happened to these farmers is that they lost their land. So when you look at the numbers, in 1920, one out of every seven American farmers was African American. Uh Today, it's like one out of every hundred. In 1910, African American farmers owned 15 million acres of farmland. By 1980, it was down to 3 million. Today, there are probably not even 18 million African-American farmers, and it's less than 1% of all farms. Wow. Now, okay, part of that is because of the Great Migration, people moving north, trying to get jobs, needing to support their families. But what happened? is in so many of these situations, an African-American would fall behind on a single tax payment. Yes. And where a white would be given time to make good on it, the African-American's property would be sold for the taxes. Mm -hmm. White families knew to write wills and leave their property to a specific person. African-American landowners generally didn't because they didn't have lawyers and they didn't have the education of the white farmers. And what that meant was that the property then gets split up in ownership among generations. Uh And all that the developers needed was to get one heir, just one, one, to sell his portion and they could force the sale of the whole property. Mm-hmm. And that's still going on today. Yes, that, that is going on today. But what about this whole tax issue? Because I have looked for documentation on an ancestor, and I could not find any court records saying, that stated they did not pay their taxes. Yet, I would see incidences of which the land was being sold on the courthouse steps. Yeah, the, the courthouse steps is the giveaway. That's that's a tax sale. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to find records in the land records. There There may have been tax records kept separately, and they're usually in two different offices. Mm-hmm. Frequently, they will even have been moved to a state archives. Um, but literally, you would find situations in the tax records where somebody who is obviously white will have been delinquent in the taxes for a year or more, mm-hmm. and the property will not be sold. It'll be continued, or the the wife is given a chance to to pay up on it. But there's there's time and lots of notice that would yeah. be given. And when it's a minority, and this is not exclusively African Americans, of course, it's also Asians and, and other minorities, very little notice and no no forbearance. Now, some of this I I suspect if you're really going to look at it from a best-case scenario, is a kind of a paternalism. 
now, now, we'll take care of you. At worst, it's outright theft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where where valuable property is underutilized because you've got people who no longer live on the land. Yes. And developers want it, and they're going to find a way to get it. It's being done in the inner cities. It's being done out on the farms. And what you're what's finding... what's the statute of limitations? I mean, let's say there's land that has been owned by the family beginning in, let's say, 1880. Mm-hmm. But the, somewhere the land is taken away. Right. But it still does not belong to the person who's taken it, let's say, until 1965. The problem is that 1965 is 50 years ago. Uh-huh. And statutes of limitations, even for land, the, a long statute of limitations is 10 years. 10 years. Uh-huh. A huge statute of limitations would be 20. Uh-huh. Plus, you'd have to prove that the current owner was in on the scheme to acquire it illegally, and you'd have to actually prove that the acquisition was illegal. Mm-hmm. That's a really hard thing. But As suppose sp- you have a document, and let me just—I'm just throwing this out, audience. Mm-hmm. Suppose you have a document that states they have no evidence to prove that the person, the original person, actually acquired the the the, the land yet. The records are right there at the National Archives to prove that they did acquire it. But part of the problem is, you know, there, the original acquisition would have been, for example, a homestead. Mm-hmm. So the the records would be at the National Archives. But when the time came that the case was in the courts, mm-hmm. who would have known that? It sure as heck would not have been the African American family. They would have no more idea in 1955 or 1945 or 1965 that they needed to ask somebody in the National Archives to help them out get those records and produce them in court. Mm-hmm. So it, it boils down to a matter of proof. And mm-hmm. that's, that's where you get this whole issue of, of property and the, the things that come with being propertied, education and understanding of documents, and understanding of the need for proof. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that that you just get outmaneuvered because the other side's got a lawyer and you don't. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot of that that went on throughout the South. Right. And there's it's, a comment coming out of the, or a question for that matter. You're saying the burden of proof is on the victims of the theft of the land, right? It would be today to get it set aside. It shouldn't have been back then. But remember, you know, look at what we're talking about in terms of proofs. Nobody is going to say in most of these cases, no, he didn't own the land, because John Smith would have been on the land for 40 years. What they're going to say is John Smith owed $2.50 for a tax on his dog, and he didn't pay it, so we're going to sell the property. Mm -hmm. 
And if John didn't understand that and didn't come in with a lawyer and the property got sold for taxes, by the time that John realized that he doesn't have the land anymore, it could well be too late to get it set aside. Do anything, yes. If he'd have had a lawyer, if he'd known, it would have been a different story at the beginning, except, of course, you're still talking about courts and systems that were geared entirely for the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, Southern justice was was simply non-existent for African Americans for decades. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality. As, well, now, as a descendant of Southerners, I'd love to say that, that that wasn't true, but I can't. But there's a question coming out. Do you do you think that this is still the way now? Let's let's just talk about what's going on with property now, the 20th century, 21st century. I am absolutely convinced that there are developers who are clearly targeting the poor and the disadvantaged and things like that one single heir who can force an entire piece of property to be sold simply because the one heir doesn't want to hold on to 36 cents worth of property. I mean, mm-hmm. we see it we see it in Washington DC, we see it in New York City, we see it in Boston, we see it in Chicago. People are being convinced to take out second and third mortgages on their property and it's all fraud. Yes. It's not people like me with a law degree who are being targeted. It's it's grandma in her townhouse in the inner city because she doesn't know any better. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. It's it. I don't think so much that it's it's active discrimination. It's choosing a victim. Mm-hmm. It doesn't and like make it any better. There's a comment: It's predatory. It's pre- predatory lenders out there. You betcha. And, uh, I mean, we're seeing all the foreclosures right now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And again, it's any poor person and anybody who doesn't know better than to sign those documents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's still going on. But the big problem in with with African American property overall is this problem of the multiple heirs and the no wills. Yes. That's yes. that's something that that you know we, we need an awful lot more lawyers helping out to write wills mm-hmm. of of African American landowners. Mhm. Mhm. Cuz that would help with a lot of that. Right. Plus we need just just education. You bet. And uh, here again, so that people you, could really understand what's going on. No question. And, and you know, land transactions are hard enough for anybody to understand. But when you're talking about a generation that came out of segregated schools, second-class education, no opportunity for college, and the only single asset that they've got is a piece of land, those are the ones who are going to be targeted. Mm-hmm. They're, they're victims in waiting. Mhm. Mhm. And all we can do is hope that the the current generation is is working as best they can with their grandparents and it's literally our our grandparents 
who are the the targets right now. Right, right. Well, we have certainly gone on a journey tonight with this whole issue of property rights and wrongs and African Americans in the courthouse. Well, I just want to just move the conversation just before we end it to ask you, have you uncovered any surprises in your own genealogical journey? I have, and and you know about it since you and I were classmates at the uh, Institute for Genealogical and Historical Research this past summer. Mm-hmm. You know, my my father was a German immigrant. He came to the United States in the 1920s, and I look at my baby book, and my mother very carefully wrote out about her grandparents that they came from Ireland and Wales. So my thought about this whole issue of slavery was that this was nothing I had to worry about because my people weren't here until after the Civil War. Uh-huh. Well, it turns out that if my mother's grandparents were born in Ireland or Wales, those must be small towns in Mississippi, because that's where they were born. They may have been Irish and Welsh in their ancestry, but they uh-huh. were. Uh-huh. we've been in the United States a very long time, before it became the United States, on my uh-huh. mother's side. Uh-huh. All in the South. And I have to tell you, I dreaded looking. I had to look because I had to know. And what my biggest surprise has been, and and the one that I'm struggling with, is that I do descend from slave owners. Uh Uh, Not in very many lines, thank heavens, but one is one too many for this Yankee to to deal with with any ease. So, yeah, that that was my big surprise, that, that we were not post-Civil War immigrants to the United States, and that all of these issues, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are things that I'm going to have to deal with with my own family history. Right. And so with you identifying this as part of your your family history, what kinds of tips and recommendations would you give to others who uncovered the same type of of circumstances which they perhaps didn't expect to find that their family members were slave owners. I think the bottom line is seek out the truth. Uh And it doesn't matter what the truth is. This is our family. This is our history. This is what made us what we are. It may make some of us stronger. It may hurt some of us. But we need to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And and we don't we need to not run from it, not hide from it, and learn to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that means going out and digging up all of these records in all of these courthouses. Mm-hmm. Slave owner or slave descendant, both. And then share it. You betcha. Share it because you have descendants of the enslaved who are looking. And and people like me, who are descendants of the slave owners, and I would love to find descendants of slaves my family owned, and and reach out a hand and let's let's see what we know about each other's families. Well, I think that that that's a that's a part of 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 our American history where we need to talk about that dialogue and have that sharing and that healing. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly we have Afrogenius.com, uh, which is a wonderful place to share information with with others who are seeking. 
So, you know, thank you so much for for at least acknowledging this is this is what you found. This is what you uncovered. This is and, the truth. And 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 the truth if 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 you can say and the truth shall set you free. Exactly. <laughs> it is something that that you've said. It's the it's the way things are. It's the way things are. Well, do you have any tips for anyone who is beginning to go to the courthouse? What what would you tell them? What should they uh, be mindful of when they start looking at courthouse records? I think the most important thing is that reading page by page mm-hmm. is going to educate them on the whole era. It's it's going to give them a good idea of how things were done, how the records were kept. So take your time. Don't mm-hmm. rush. Mm-hmm. And and work your way through the records with an eye towards the long run. This isn't this isn't the begats. You're not going to get John begat Ben begat Sarah. You want the story. Yes. And and getting the story is going to take time. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much, Judy. This has been just a wonderful discussion, and I'm hoping that the chatters, the listeners, that you have gained something tonight by having the legal genealogist, Judy Russell, share with us about property rights and wrongs of African Americans and the records that are available at the courthouse. So thank you so much for joining me tonight. And everyone remember, Judy does put out a blog, The Legal Genealogist. You need to read her blog. Thank you so much for those kind words. Informative, entertaining, and you do get something out of those blogs. I love reading your blogs, Judy. So thank you so very much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, I want to just let everyone know what's coming up. Uh, First of all, this is the last live broadcast for 2012, but it is not the last show for 2012. I am rebroadcasting two shows before the end of the year. Uh, Next Thursday, December the 27th, you will have an opportunity to listen to Thomas DeWolf and Sharon Morgan discuss their book, Gather at the Table, The Healing Journey of Daughter of Slavery and the Son of the Slave Trade. And they uh, they interviewed with me back in September. Uh, this was one of those shows where I had over 10,000 listeners. And so this is going to be a, a rebroadcast. And then on Sunday, December the 30th at 9 p.m., I am rebroadcasting the interview with Alilia Bundles, Research Gems and Revelations at the National Archives. And you will hear about the events planned at the National Archives for uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. And Alilia Bundles is the chair and president of the National Archives Foundation. Also, I am just, and I say this every time, but I am so excited about my January lineup. Oh, goodness, what can I say? We're going to start January off different. 
January 3rd, I want you to get ready to make changes. That's right, genealogist. My guest is Sharon Weinstein, and Sharon is the author of Be for Balance, and we will be discussing keeping your balance. Now, genealogists, one of the things we know is we spend a lot of time doing our research, but are we neglecting our health? Are we getting enough sleep, exercising enough, eating right? Well, that's going to be the show to help you get your balance. And so January 3rd, we will have Sharon Weinstein, wonderful speaker. I've known Sharon for over 20 years, and I know that Sharon has a message. She'll give you 10 tips to keep you on target and keep them balanced. And then on January 10th, we're going to talk about getting youth involved in genealogy. That's right, Nika Smith. She is the Chair of Outreach and Education Committee for the African American Genealogical Society of Northern California. And she's an accomplished communications professional and photographer, and she has a passion for getting youth involved in genealogy. And then on January the 17th, I don't know why I want to keep saying July, but January the 17th, we're going to talk about the brown babies, Germany's forgotten children. And we will be joined by German brown baby adoptee and genealogist, Henriette Kane. And she's going to discuss the process of connecting the American and German heritage. So I'm I'm really looking forward to having uh, Henriette uh, join us. And then on January 24th, how many of you have this book that you need to write that you haven't written yet? Well, I want you to get ready for the author's midwife, Anita Paul. Write your life, and she is going to help us just really move forward to write that book. Are you struggling to write? You want to get it published? That's the the show you want to uh, listen to. And then on the 31st of January, Searching for the Truth, The Mulatto Slave. And we will have Denise Griggs. She's an author and a book publisher and a family historian. And she's going to take you through this entire process of verifying the oral family history that was given to her by her grandfather, William Hunt. So January is going to be really exciting month, folks. And believe me, I am booked. I have people scheduled all the way to April. And so... If any of you are out there and you want to be on my show, give me a holler. I'm here. I want you on the show as much as you may want to be on the show. So, everyone, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and say to everyone, good night. Thank you so much, Judy Russell. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, 
research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com. Like my Facebook page on Research at the National Archives, and remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, President of BB's Genealogy and Educational Services. You can go on my website, see all of the shows that I have scheduled, and I just want to say good night again, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night. Good night, Judy. Good night, night everyone. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.